right, well, if you want to grab your Bible with me and turn with me to the Gospel of John. It's been a while since we've been in this book. We left off in May. Uh, but we'll pick it up where we left off in John chapter 8, verse 31. And if you're looking at the Bible in the chair in front of you, that's found on page, I believe, 894. Is that right? All right. Mike says we're good. 894. One of the the pivotal uh, events uh, that happen in redemptive history, when you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, one of the pivotal events of redemptive history is the Exodus. For 400 years, you'll, you'll know that God's people lived as slaves in Egypt. Joseph had brought the people, his family, to Egypt in order to provide food, and he was sold into slavery. They provided food. He was, he ra- he was raised up to the second power of Egypt. But when he died, the, the Pharaoh after him forgot Joseph, and they were enslaved as slaves to Pharaoh. It was, Egypt, was a, Egypt was a ruthless master, mistreated the people of God, made their life bitter. They were trapped. And so, we're told in Scripture, the people of God cried out to God for deliverance. And God, being the faithful God that he is, remembered his promise, the covenant that he made with Abraham. He heard their cry for help, and in response, he raised up Moses to lead his people out of Egypt all the way east to the promised land in Canaan, out of slavery into freedom. Because of God's powerful deliverance, his people would then pack up, leave Egypt, and for the first time in their life, breathe the air of freedom. And so as you watch these Israelites who have just been set free from slavery in Egypt breathe the air of freedom, we might expect that they're going to coast off into the sunset and life is going to be wonderful for them. But the trip, we know, from Egypt all the way to the promised land in Canaan was riddled with difficulty. At one point, we know that they're pinned up against the Red Sea with the Egyptian army coming to destroy them. Later on, we find out they run out of water and food. Millions of people in the wilderness without water or food. And by the time they finally make it to Canaan, the promised land, we read in the book of Numbers that that they they send some spies in and bring back a report. And when they look at the enemies that God is calling them to root out of the promised land, they're overwhelmed. They're huge. They're giants. They're so Big, their military force is so powerful, they feel like little grasshoppers. And so, this is not what they had in mind when they thought about freedom. And so at several different points, you can read about it in Exodus and Numbers, at several different points, God's people grumble. God's people complain. And they become so anxious that they decide that it's better for them to pack up. They're on the verge of the promised land, but they decide at many points throughout this trip, it's time to pack up. It's better for us to go back to Egypt, the nation that enslaved them for 400 years. Why would they want to go back? 
in part, I think it's because they had a wrong idea of freedom. Friends, I tell you this account of the Exodus because in the, in the same way, Christians today are on their own Exodus path. When we trust Christ, we're told in Scripture, you can read about it in Romans 6, for example, we are told that we are set free. We are free. And then once we're set free, we then follow God until we reach the promised land. Not Canaan, but the new heavens and the new earth, which Jesus promises to usher in the last day. And so like the people of God in Exodus, the path between Egypt and the promised land that we are on has its difficulties. Amen? So church, I wonder, in this past week, have you grumbled? Have you complained? Have you worried this past week? Has it crossed your mind that maybe it's better to go back to Egypt? I wonder if you have grumbled or complained, and and I think most of us would say, yeah. (laughs) I wonder if we have, that it's possible that our turmoil, our consternation is due to an unbiblical idea of freedom. In our text today, Jesus is going to define for us what a Christian is. And in defining what a Christian is, he actually defines what Christian freedom is. So if you're a note taker, here's the three points. I'm going to give them to you up front. Point number one, remember our need for freedom. Point number two, grasp the nature of freedom. Point number three, live out God's purpose for freedom. Remember our need for freedom, grasp the nature of freedom, live out God's purpose for freedom. That's what we're going to see, I think, in God's word this morning in John chapter 8. So let's pick it up. Let's turn our attention to the word of God in verse 31. Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, and you are, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The Son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Here in verses 31 through 36, we see the call to remember our need for freedom. Uh, Chapter 8 really belongs in the narrative with chapter 7. And ever since chapter 7, Jesus has been in Jerusalem, in the temple, teaching during the Feast of Booths. And we know uh, from the Old Testament, that the Feast of Booths was one of three annual feasts that the people of Israel were commanded to make an, a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So if you can picture the temple, it would have been crowded with Jews uh, coming to remember the Feast of Booths. And there is Jesus teaching. And so far, as we've seen in chapter 7 and chapter 8, there was a mixed response from the Jews in the temple listening to Jesus teach. Some rejected Jesus and what he was teaching. They were antagonistic to him. But where we left off earlier, verse 30 says, many believed in him. That's where we left off in in 
May. Today, when we pick up the text again in verse 31, this is where the, the way that John left off. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. So that's an important thing to remember. He's speaking to the Jews who had listened to him teach and had believed in him. And they believed in Jesus. That's a good thing. But what Jesus, as the Son of God, sees, they don't yet realize. God knows what's in man. We saw that in chapter 2, verse 25. And so he knows something about their faith that they don't yet realize. That is, that their faith is phony. Their faith is counterfeit. As Jesus says in 31, true discipleship, genuine faith, is marked by an abiding in his word. Abiding means obeying Jesus' word. Not just once in a while when it's convenient for us. To abide means to continue. It means to persevere in obedience, even when obedience to Jesus' words are unpopular or opposed or costly. By the end of chapter 8, they pick up stones to kill Jesus. And so I think it's pretty safe to say that that's a fairly good sign that they don't actually believe him. Their faith is phony. Now some of you might hear the idea of a counterfeit faith being in somebody who professes belief, and and that idea might make you feel uncomfortable. You have a very sensitive conscience. And maybe you you start looking inward and start asking yourself, is my faith real? And that's a very difficult, uncomfortable question to ask. But I want us to remember here and to see in the text that Jesus' goal is not to ridicule. It's not to berate. Jesus' goal in highlighting what he is here is to help. Listen, Jesus came to deliver. He came to set the captive free. That's good news. The problem that we see here is that they are actually offended by Jesus saying that they need to be delivered. They don't think they need delivered. Look at verse 33. They answered him, hold on. I'm adding that. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Do you hear the offense that they're taking against Jesus? They were prepared to believe Jesus as a teacher who told them things about God. They're okay with that. As long as Jesus' teaching fit into their Jewishness that they prized and valued. You teach in a way that fits within our framework of our Jewishness, we're okay with you, Jesus, we believe. But if you challenge what they value, whoa, hold on. To suggest that they, the offspring of Abraham, needed to become free while Jesus had crossed a line. They were not about to change. Because in their mind, as the offspring of Abraham, they were already good people. They were already free. And so Jesus, who sees the hearts of men and women with love and firmness and authority, challenges them in verse 34. Truly, truly, he says, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Notice the word everyone. Everyone, not some, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Do you see the everyone? We together? 
You can say, yeah, all right. Think about it. Why do we continue to do the things that we know are wrong? Why do people sin when they know that it's going to hurt them anyways? Why do we sin knowing that it will lead us to death and hell? Why do we do it anyways? Because left to ourselves, Jesus says, we are slaves of sin. Shackled in chains, in bondage to sin and to its demands. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And the Bible teaches that there is no one who does not sin except Jesus. That means, friends, that the default of everyone born into this world, whether you're the offspring of Abraham as a physical Jew or not, whether you're a Gentile, the default position, our natural state, is to be born into this world as a slave to sin. That's everyone. And sin is a ruthless master that lies to us and deceives us. It promises us life, but it never delivers. It only leads to death. I remember when I was about eight years old, we were swimming with some friends in a lake, and they had this enormous foam mat. I can't, it was like 12 feet by 12 feet. It was huge. And on top of the mat, there was like all these kids running around. They were jumping off. And at one point, I decided, I'm going to try to swim underneath the mat. And so I, I, I swam underneath the mat. But at some point... It was dark underneath there, and I became disoriented, and I went up, but all I could find was the mat, and it's this huge mat, and now I'm disoriented. My lungs are screaming out for air. It was dark. I could not find my way out, and panic began to set in. I was trapped under a mat filled with little kids on top, and I couldn't breathe. I couldn't see my way out. I couldn't get out, and for a moment, I, I, you think, I don't know if I'm going to make it out of this. Thankfully, the, the mat moved a little bit. I could see the light of day, and I came up, and I <gasps> gasped for breath, and I was okay. But I, I give you that illustration because I, want to, I think that to understand what Jesus is saying here, it's not just that you understand cognitively what he's saying, but we as followers of Jesus need to feel. We need to remember the feeling of desperation, of hopelessness that we were in apart from Christ, that we are in apart from Jesus. By ourselves, left to ourselves, in our default position, we are slaves of sin. Look at verse 36. He says, if the Son sets you free, that's Jesus, you will be free indeed. What he's saying is, friends, left to ourselves, we cannot break free. The only way to be free, free indeed, is if the Son of God sets you free. This is one truth I think about God that we are meant to see in the text here and to rejoice. Whenever you read God's word, ask yourself, what does this text teach me about God? And one of the things that it teaches us about God is that he is our deliverer. We were slaves of sin. And Jesus is our deliverer. And he came to us when we were trapped under the mat of sin and there was no way for us to get out and we were without hope. Church, remember do you remember the dark, hopeless situation that you were in apart from Christ? We were imprisoned in chains, in shackles, in darkness, on a path to hell that we deserved. We were deceived. We went willingly with Satan. We were indifferent to the cost. 
And yet our deliverance came because our deliverer came. It was free to us, but it came at a great cost to him. It was his life as a ransom for ours, his death in our place so that his life would become our life. By grace, friends, we have been set free from sin's power, from sin's guilt, and from sin's condemnation. There is now no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We're set free. Praise God. What does that mean for us now, though? Well, lots of things. Let me just highlight one thing our unity as a church as the people of God. The world is divided right now, if you haven't been awake. Divided over politics, divided over COVID, divided over race, divided over many, many, many things that we could go on talking about. And as James 4 teaches us, the sin that fuels this division in the world is pride. James 4 is kind of a a description of what happens. You have two groups who are opposed, they're divided. Both groups are pointing their finger at the other Both groups are highlighting the other's flaws. Both groups are keeping a record of their wrongs, and both groups are assuming the worst in the other group. They are villainizing each other. Why? In order to protect what they want, to protect what's valuable to them. The way out of this division, James says, is humility. Remember James 4, 6? God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Both groups are so busy. The problem is that both groups are so busy pointing fingers and keeping record of wrongs that they actually fail to look in the mirror and to see their need for deliverance. And if you don't see your need for deliverance, your need for deliverance, and you can only see their need for deliverance, the division only widens. The flames of division only go higher. And that may be how the world operates. And we may not be able to untangle how the world operates right now, but that's not how the church operates. That's not how First Baptist Church of Upper Arbor operates. We must not operate that way. Friends, like the folks in verse 31, we need to ask ourselves, is it possible that we believe Jesus? We like what he's teaching. We say amen to what he's teaching. But we keep certain areas of our life and our values off limits to the authority of God, off limits to the authority of King Jesus, off limits to the authority of his word. I'll follow you here, but don't mess with this part. Is it possible? Friends, when our sin that we're trying to keep for ourselves is exposed by the light of Christ, remember chapter eight, verse 12, he is the light of the world. So you follow Jesus, you're following the light of the world. (laughs) So when our sin is exposed, and it will be exposed from time to time, our tendency is to try to hide it to deny it, to get defensive and point out the sin of others in order to get the spotlight off of us. Isn't that what Adam did with Eve? Eve, Adam, why did you eat the fruit? It's the woman you gave me. We just follow in that pattern. We we turn the spotlight on to others so that we, we can feel better about ourselves. But church, God, listen, God sees everything clearly. He's got 20, 20 vision when it comes to our hearts. He sees the secrets of our hearts and that's good news. God knows our sin, but listen, in Christ, he paid for all our sin. Our sin is great, but his mercy is more. And he loves us, he forgives us, and he adopts us and loves us as his own children. So when the light of Christ threatens something that we value, 
We don't need to hide or be defensive. We don't need to blame and lash out. In our greatest need, Jesus already has come as our deliverer. We don't need to justify ourselves because he already knows the worst about us and he's already justified us. Remember that, church. Live in the freedom of that. Remember that we have a need for our, this freedom that God has given us. Point number two. So number one is remember your need for freedom. Point number two, grasp the nature of freedom. Grasp the nature of freedom. So he's, he's talking about freedom. What is this freedom? Well, we're gonna, he's going to define it for us. Look at verse 37. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, and yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works that your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual morality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. And the reason why you do not hear them is because that you are not of God. Friends, in verses 37 through 47, we see this the need to grasp the nature of freedom. It is, I think, human nature for us to long for freedom. No one wants to be imprisoned by anything. And so we long for freedom. It's a natural human inclination. We want financial freedom, freedom from illness, political freedom. You know, students who are in school long for the freedom of summer break. Exhausted parents long for the freedom of free time. For many in the workplace, retirement is seen as the coming freedom. There are a variety of freedoms in this world. But what I want us to highlight and see here in this text is that not all ideas of freedom, not all ideas of freedom are created equal. Imagine this afternoon you go up in an airplane 15,000 feet above ground and you, you're going skydiving. But what you don't know is on your back, the parachute that's strapped to you doesn't work. You don't know that, but you're going skydiving. You jump out of the airplane at 15,000 feet, and for a few moments of adrenaline-pumping free fall, you look around, you feel the air, and you feel free. But are you free? It feels free. 
but in 60 seconds you're going to be dead, not free on the ground. The Jews in verse 31 were in a free fall. They didn't know their parachute didn't work, didn't work. And so Jesus, who sees that their parachute is not going to work, comes to them in love and in mercy. He comes to deliver them. Today, I think it's popular to define freedom as this way. Me being free to do what I want. Me being free to do what I want, when I want, and no one stopping me. Free to follow my heart. Free to follow my desires. Free to follow my dreams. That doesn't sound bad, right? In some ways that might be a good thing, but... And, and, and freedom, freedom can be a wonderful gift. Freedom can be something to work for. At times, freedom is something that is worth fighting for. But the problem in the world's definition of freedom, the thing that keeps the parachute from opening, is the idea that freedom is doing what I want. I, apart from God. That's the poison in the definition. That's where the parachute is broken. And this lie about freedom being me doing what I want when I want was introduced to us very in the very beginning in the text that, that uh, Isaac read earlier to us from Genesis 3. Satan comes to Eve in the Garden of Eden and he, he gets her to question the goodness of God. Is God really good? I don't think he is, Eve. I mean, I think God is holding out on you, being the one in charge. I mean, God knows, and then the lie comes in. God knows that when you eat this fruit, you'll be like God. That you'll, that's where the real life begins. That's where the true freedom comes. When you get out from underneath of his rule, when you get out from underneath of his authority, and you really live in freedom, when you can do what you want, when you want, as your own God. So eat the fruit. Sounds good. Eve takes it. And things fall apart. Friends, the, the fruit in the Garden of Eden tasted, I, I imagine it tasted very sweet on her lips when they first ate the fruit. But it was only for a moment. And that's always the way that sin works. It never delivers what it promises. Instead of life, sin brings death and bondage. And that's why our world's a mess right now. That's why it's always been a mess. And it will be a mess until Christ returns. But this background in Genesis 3 is, is what helps explain Jesus' words, his difficult words, in verse 44. We were driving by the church this week, and my wife was ro rolling her eyes that we titled this sermon, When Your Father's the Devil. But that's what the text says, right? So, verse 44, Jesus says, You are, your, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So if the Jews were already offended that Jesus suggested that they need to be set free, well, here the insult or the offense is notched up a little bit. Because when you say that your daddy is the devil, that's pretty hard to take in. But I think part of the reason he goes after this is because they keep emphasizing over and over, Abraham's our father, we're the offspring of Abraham. We're the offspring of Abraham. We're sons of Abraham. That's their boast. Six times we see in our text this morning 
they refer to the being of the offspring of Abraham. That's, that's what they value. That's what they hope and that's what they boast in. And the thinking here is like father, like son, right? If Abraham was favored of God and called by God, then they naturally assume that as the physical offspring of Abraham, that they have the inside track on God's favor. If he favored Abraham, we're his sons, then we must also have that favor. We're good. But look again at verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, hold on. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. So like father, like son is, is, is correct. But Jesus' point here is that Ancestry.com does not reveal who's in God's family. It's how we live, who we trust, that actually reveals what family you and I belong to. Whether the devil's your daddy or God is your father, Abraham is your, is your father. In verse 44, Jesus shows us two things about the devil, his goal and his method. Satan's goal from the very beginning has been death. He was a murderer from the beginning, right? If if life is found in Jesus, and we saw that in the prologue, John 1, 4, in him was life. If life is in Jesus, Satan's goal has always been to destroy you, destroy your life, to kill you, by getting you to distrust Jesus. If he gets you to distrust Jesus, to think that God is not good, and to distance yourself from him, then you're distancing yourself from life, and the murderer has won. So how does Satan do it? What's his method? His method, Jesus says, to kill is deception. There is no truth in him, he says in verse 44. He is a liar and the father of lies. So this is what we see happening with these Jews who believed Jesus. They thought they were free because they were Abraham's offspring, but their parachute was broken. Satan had lied to them. Sin had lied to them. Again, verse 44 says, you were of your father, the devil, and notice this, and your will, what you want is to do your father's desires. You see that? No one twisted their arm to follow Satan. They did it willingly. They wanted to do what Satan was telling them. (laughs) True freedom, then, is not doing what I want apart from God. That's actually slavery. That's bondage. Here's Here's the point I think Jesus is making. Christian freedom, true freedom, is being set free to do God's will. Let me say that again. Christian freedom is being set free to do God's will. There was a time when you were slaves of sin, you couldn't. You and I couldn't. We didn't want to, we didn't care, we didn't, we didn't see. But when you are set free by Jesus, you are set free to do God's will, to obey him. And I think one of the things this text highlights is that this is something that does not happen in our own strength. Jesus must set us free. The desire and strength to do God's will is not inherent in us. It is something that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Bible actually talks about our becoming a Christian this way. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. The prophet says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh 
and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. When Jesus is talking about the new birth in John 3, I think it's this idea that he had in mind. That God himself would change your heart. That he would put his spirit in you and help you to obey his commands. Church, praise God for this. You don't have to say yes to sin today. You don't have to be a slave to sin. You can say no, sin. No. I'm not going to do what you say. I'm not a slave of you anymore. I've been set free. The chains have fallen. I can now finally say yes to righteousness. Yes to God. Yes to his word. And by the empowerment of his Holy Spirit, I can want and have the strength to do what he says, even in hard times. Praise God for this. But church, at the same time, I think this is also a good warning for us to be vigilant. Because we can, we, we, can, we can, like the Israelites, go back to Egypt. We can go back to slavery. We must be careful then to pay careful attention to God's word on a daily basis, lest we drift from what he says. We need to gather together like we are right now so that we can stir each other up to love and to good deeds. We must exhort one another daily as long as it is called today so that we are not hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And friends, we must watch and we must pray so that we don't fall into temptation. We need each other and we need the help of God so that we don't go back to Egypt. All right, young people, I love seeing you up front like this. Keep doing that. Let me talk to you for a second. Whether you're in high school or middle school or college, about to go to college, let me talk to you for a second. The movies that you watch or that are on TV, the internet, social media, the universities that you're going to go to, the people all around the world are going to bombard you, and I'm sure you're already seeing this. They're going to bombard you with the idea that freedom is you doing whatever you want to do. They're going to tell you that. They're going to whisper that. They're going to sing that in very different ways to get you to believe that true freedom is doing whatever you want when you want. Follow your heart, they'll say. You do you, they'll say. So, for example, when it comes to sexual ethics, what the world thinks about premarital sex or pornography or homosexuality or gender, what the world will say is that the desires of the individual are what determines what's right and wrong. You do you. Not God who created you and loves you and tells you how to live. They'll say ignore that and follow your desires. And what I want to say to you, friends, is don't, don't give in to that idea. Don't be lured into the world's idea or lie about freedom. It's not true. The devil makes his ideas sound plausible, makes them sound good. In fact, the world will tell us that we're unloving if we disagree with them. But don't, don't, don't be lured into that lie. Young people decide right now, put a stake in the ground, that God is good, that Jesus tells you the truth, and follow him, trust him. Submit to him and what he says is right and good for your life over and against what the world says. You know why I'm telling you that? Because one of the things that Jesus says about himself over and over and over in this text is that he is true. He always and only tells you the truth. He loves you and wants you to live. He says in John 10, 10, the thief has come to kill and destroy. I have come to give you life and give you it abundantly. You know why? Because he tells you the truth. Believe him, trust him. Go with what he says in the word. Read his word daily and follow what he says. Stay in the church. 
Follow him. It leads to life. Point number one, remember your need for freedom. Point number two, grasp the nature of freedom. Point number three, live out God's purpose for your freedom. Live out God's purpose for your freedom. We're going to see that in verses 48 through 59. Look with me at verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, and yet you say if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I did not know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Don't miss this. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. In these verses, I think Jesus shows us, calls us to live out the purpose of our freedom. God's purpose for our freedom is his glory. God's purpose for our freedom is his glory. To show the watching world the truth about who he is. To show the world his faithfulness, his goodness, his trustworthiness, his reliability, his mercy, his grace, his patience. Everything that's true about God, we enjoy our freedom for his glory. So the catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so if Christian freedom means being free to do God's will, note this, the most free, the freest human being to ever walk this planet was Jesus Christ. Think of it. The inconvenience that makes us boil in anger, Jesus is free to respond in perfect patience. The uncertainty that makes us anxious about tomorrow, Jesus is free to trust God in perfect peace. Jesus is not fearful. He is not threatened or insecure by those who are dishonoring him in this text or who are dishonoring him today. Instead, as the King of kings and Lord of lords, he's free to respond in love to those who dishonor him. And we're called to do the same. And so the natural question is how? How does Jesus do that? Notice verse 50. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. He is the judge. He does it by trusting his father. How can we live out the purpose of our freedom? How can we obey his commands in a way that glorifies God? By trusting 
in God. My non-Christian friend, I'm so glad you're here this morning or listening online. Uh, I want you to notice some of the reasons why people keep Jesus at arm's length in this text. These Jews profess they believe, and then they kind of stiff-arm Jesus throughout this text. And look at the reasons. Verse 32, the reason was self-sufficiency. We have never been enslaved to anyone. Stiff-arm. Verse 41, it's scandal. We have not been born of sexual immorality. You can hear them hinting at kind of the the wrongly assumed scandal around Jesus' birth. We know it's a virgin birth. Where was Joseph? What happened to Mary? That's who you came from? Can we really believe what you're saying? They're attaching scandal wrongly to Jesus. And when all else fails, by verse 48, they resort to name-calling. You're a Samaritan. You're demon-possessed. They're, they're, they're skirting the issue that's most essential by pushing against and stiffing arm Jesus for various reasons. And, and things don't change in 2,000 years. There's lots of reasons that people keep Jesus at arm's length today. And some are really legitimate. Some have been hurt by someone in the church in the past, and so they stiff-arm Jesus. Some object at the hypocrisy that they see in the church, and so they stiff-arm Jesus. It could be unanswered prayer, or the problem of evil. Or for some, it just might seem like this whole Jesus thing is not important to them right now. Life's going okay. I'll get around to it later. But what I want us to see in this text is that John does not allow us to kind of do that. He keeps putting the most essential, important question right in front of our face. Jesus is claiming to be God. That's a big claim. And it comes with huge implications on our lives, whether we reject that truth or we deny that. And so, given that Jesus claimed to be God is a big one, it's, it's important for you as a non-Christian to carefully weigh the claims of Jesus. I get that. You should consider carefully what he's saying. But let me just encourage you with this. As you weigh the claims, remember what Jesus said to those who are pushing against him in verse 46. He says this, which one of you convicts me of sin? And the answer is assumed, they can't. Which one of you, you're, you're pushing me, you're, you're stiff-arming me, so... So which one of you actually convicts me of sin? And if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? It's a good question. Part of the answer we get in this text is that there's no room in their heart for him. That's why we sang, prepare him room. They just didn't want to hear what Jesus had to say. Listen, I understand that some of the objections and the pain that, that people have experienced that makes them stiff-arm Jesus are real. The church, listen, the church is made of imperfect people. There is, I, I'm a hypocrite at times. That's why I'm a member of a church. <laughs> and, 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 and we're going to let people down. We're going to sin against each other. And we acknowledge that. That's why we are Christians. We're not, we're not trying to hide that. We're not saying we're holier than that. We're saying, I get it. I need Jesus. That's why we're here. And I think some of the questions that people wrestle with when it comes to the brokenness in the world and dealing with the claims of the Bible, those are, those are good questions. But again, if you're not yet a Christian, don't let those good questions distract you from the most essential question, the question that the gospel of John keeps putting in front of our face. Who is Jesus and what are you going to do with him? Don't get distracted by good questions without missing the essential question. John's gospel is written to answer the question of who Jesus is and to show us how we can have life in his name. That's why this gospel is written. Over and over and over in John's gospel, we're going to see who Jesus is and how we're going to have life in his name. Look at verse 51. 
51. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He came to give life. He wants to show these people how they can never see death, eternal death and hell. And so to those, don't miss this, to those who dishonor Jesus, to those who call him names, demon-possessed, Samaritan, to those who pick up stones to kill Jesus, Jesus, in the face of that opposition, is still committed to their good. He's still committed to give them life. To give us life. How does he do that? He tells us, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. You gotta keep his word. Problem is, you have failed to keep his word. I have failed to keep his word. All of us have failed to keep his word. We've already seen up in the beginning, if anyone sins, they're a slave of sin. We've not kept his word. So that's not good news. Where does the good news come in? Look at the end of verse 55. Jesus says, I know him and I have kept his word. The good news of Christianity is that where we have failed to do what God commands, Jesus has succeeded. Salvation is not in you performing. Salvation is found in Christ. Recognizing your deficiency and hiding in refuge in Jesus and what he has done for you and me in his death and his resurrection. He lived the perfect life that we have failed to live that God demands of us. There was no sin on his record so that when he died on the cross, he was dying as our substitute. He was giving his life in our place to pay our ransom so that he could set us free from sin. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead and now he lives so that anyone, anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in him, him will never see death. That's what he promises. And in Christ, we'll have eternal life. So again, my non-Christian friend, do you believe that Jesus speaks the truth? Or do you think he's a liar? If you believe that he speaks the truth, it's not enough for you to just nod your head. You need to trust him. You need to turn from your sin and trust him. And I urge you to do that today. If you have questions about what that means, come talk to me afterwards. Talk to anybody in the, in the building who, 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 who knows, knows what they're doing. We'll have pastors at the doors afterwards. We'd love to talk with you more about what it means to trust in him. In closing, look again with me at verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, that would sound outlandish to the Jews. Abraham died some 1,800 years before Jesus. So how could Jesus, not yet 50, have seen Abraham? What does he mean when he says that Abraham saw his day and rejoiced? Well, there's a couple of things it could be. Maybe it's both. It could refer to the promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis 12, that in Abraham all the families of the earth would be blessed. Abraham was about 100 years old when he had Isaac, so humanly speaking, it was impossible. And yet Abraham believed God, we see in Genesis 15, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Or it could be what happened in Genesis 22. After Isaac was born, his only son, the son of promise, God commands Abraham to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. And right before he obeys God and slays his son with a knife, God provides a substitute, a ram in the thicket to be a substitute for his son Isaac. And it's possible that in that, 
Abraham was seeing the, the coming day when a Messiah would come through his line that God had promised. Whatever the case, Jesus is clear. Abraham saw Jesus' day, and look at his response. He was glad. And it's then that, that, that Jesus drops the gauntlet. Verse 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He could have said, before Abraham was, I was, in order to highlight his eternality. But that's not what he says. He is showing the fact that he's eternal, but he's doing more than that. In saying that before Abraham was, I am, what Jesus is saying is that he is God. The eternal God. God in the flesh. Because God has revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3.14 as I am. And if you don't think that's what he's saying, make no mistake, that's what the Jews who heard him say that knew what he was claiming. That's why they pick up stones to kill him. Because they understand his claim to be the I am is a claim of deity, to be God. Friends, on the road from Egypt to the promised land, God's people were free. They had been delivered. But they would face trouble on that road from Egypt to the promised land that would test whether or not they would trust God. In the same way, brothers and sisters, we too have been set free from sin. Sin is no longer your master. You believe that? But you're not home yet. And on the way to the promised land, we too will see difficulties and trouble. There's coming a day when Christ will return and he'll bring in the new heavens and the new earth and there will be no more pain or sorrow or suffering or COVID or death or racism or anything else that makes this world a mess right now. But until then, the question is for us, will we trust him? Will we trust him? Or will we, like the Israelites, complain and grumble and turn back to Egypt? Back to slavery. The Jews boasted in being physical offspring of Abraham, but to be a son of Abraham is a matter of faith, not pedigree. Our freedom is not based on money in the bank or who's in office or having a comfortable, trouble-free life. Christians, we are free because of Jesus, and he, the eternal son of God, the I am, is with us on our way from Egypt to the promised land. Just as God parted the Red Sea and made manna come down from the sky and as he wiped out the the powerful enemy that was in the promised land to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, just as God went before his people in the past, he goes before us now, parting Red Seas, providing manna and defeating enemies. And so, friends, he's with us. The I am is with us. Let's go with him. Let's trust him. Let's turn to him. Let's trust him. Let's trust him together. Amen? Let's pray.